The oil industry got hit with the double whammy of COVID and the depressed oil price. I'm John Manis, an investor at Base Set Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund investing in founders, transforming the way people work across all parts of the economy, from factories to offices. This is episode seven of Future Proof. Today we're talking with Ian Cooper, fresh off a nearly 30 year run with multinational oil field services company Schlumberger, where Ian ran research, product, and ultimately corporate venture. Ian has taken up a new role as CEO of Seacops, a drone startup providing end-to-end gas emissions inspections. The oil industry has no comp for the amount of change it's had to withstand in the last year. For most of the economy, COVID slashing demand and forcing work from home upon office workers was enough to cope with. But oil has had these normal side effects mixed with a cocktail of other woes. From a high-speed collision between Saudi Arabia and Russia that resulted in the drastic oversupply of oil and subsequent market crash, to the broader energy transition that has the entire oil and gas ecosystem of producers and service providers grappling with their role in a post-oil economy. The net result is an industry that continues to be hungry for technology to facilitate a smooth energy transition and keep operational efficiency moving in the right direction. Welcome, Ian. Let's start off with a bit of background. So Ian Cooper, Scottish spelling of Ian, so born in Inverness, Scotland, a long time ago, joined Schlumberger about 30 years ago, straight out of doing a PhD in meteorology, of all things. So still keep a keen interest in the weather. Spent time in Schlumberger developing and managing technology development, R&D, in a variety of business segments, cross-drilling, fracturing, cementing. Then about 12 years ago, founded a VC group within Schlumberger. And uh, we wanted to be a unique kind of corporate VC where we really partnered with the companies we invested into it to adopt or accelerate those companies uh, into the oil field. Awesome. And we're just so, so lucky to have you, the wealth of experience. Every time we sit down and have a conversation, I learn something. So listeners will learn a lot from this for sure. So maybe just to start off, why don't we give listeners a little bit of a rundown on what's been happening in oil and gas in the last six months? And I know it's a lot between COVID and geopolitics and oil prices. The oil industry got hit with the double whammy of COVID and the depressed oil price. Some would ever question that we ever came out of the last downturn. And certainly you know, companies like BP you know, publicly saying it's not lower for longer, it's lower forever. Certainly, I think make everyone rethink how they look at technology development, technology deployment in those industries. The main thing I've seen, and particularly from the operators and certainly now from the service sector as well, has been to focus on the energy transition and and how they participate in the decarbonization of their industry, but also to transition into the renewable space, into the hydrogen economy into uh, lithium production, which was something Schlumberger did just before I left with a public investment into a small company in technology. That's been the main trend is, is seeing how they participate in what to them is a very new area. And to me, the, the kind of dichotomy between uh, the service sector and the operators who have very different approaches in, in how they address the transition. The first lens to view oil and gas, of course, is the traditional upstream, midstream, downstream framework. Are you seeing that technology investment in decarbonization in all three of those spaces as a main priority, or are you seeing any differences in in one space or another? The main focus I've seen has certainly been around the upstream side. That's primarily where I've operated, of course, as well. Certainly, we're starting to see it kind of come into the midstream side. I would say downstream certainly has always had kind of a focus on emissions, perhaps less so the upstream space. But I would say, you know, the focus on the upstream side in terms of investment over the last few years 
has really been on lowering cost of service delivery, lowering cost of equipment, removing personnel from hazardous environments and from the well site in general, and then looking at consistency of delivery, service quality. So obviously there's been a big focus on digital transformation to support those kind of activities. And I would say that's really been the key area across the whole of the oil and gas domain, uh, upstream, midstream, downstream, has been that digital transformation, which has perhaps been a little slower and taken a little longer than some other industry verticals. And then the other lens that I think a lot of people think about the oil and gas industry from is oil field services versus the traditional majors. And so if you're comparing like a Halliburton or a Schlumberger in terms of how they think about technology with an Exxon or a Shell or a BP, how would you explain that dichotomy and where you're seeing each of those entities focus? That's a very good question. And it's always been one that has baffled me a little. And again, in the, in the kind of 29 years I was there is how can they work together on technology development, the operator and the service company uh, better? Because so Certainly, it's a competitive market in terms of pricing for the services. I think it was unique that uh, the service sector really was a follower when it came to venture investment. So certainly, you had the bellwether uh, kind of investment groups like those at Chevron and initially at, at Conoco, and now, of course, BP. And, and of course, BP Ventures actually started with energy transition technologies moved into downstream, upstream oil and gas, and then reverted back into renewable energy. And the service sector has only really just kind of participated in that energy transition sector. What's been interesting as well has been the number of co-investments I think the service sector has now done with the operators, because obviously they're early adopters, early customers for some of the portfolio companies there. So for something that perhaps shouldn't work well together, it's surprising that they have. And I think it's really due to a lot of the personnel that have been in the VC phase between the operators and the service sector. I think there's been an openness, frankly, perhaps that you see more so than the operational side. Interesting. So one thing we hear a lot, at least on the traditional institutional venture side, is that getting adoption through an oil field services company can actually make more sense as a startup than trying to go after one of the majors. Do you think that still holds true? As with all here, I think it depends. It depends on the exact stage of the technologies at. Sometimes it's better to have a broad interest across multiple operators just because the environments can be significantly different. Certainly, the operators don't necessarily want the service companies involved too early, particularly if a service company is an exit for that portfolio company. So you may see uh, an operator Series A funded portfolio company kind of resist a Series A investment from a a service company just because they, they really want to explore a much broader domain with that portfolio company. And then perhaps when it looks like one of the service companies is really probably a more suited exit for them to then bring them in at a later stage of B or C. There were a bunch of themes you brought up in that overall background there, partly the energy transition piece, part of thinking about remote work and what's happening in the oil industry right now post-COVID. I want to tackle a couple of these items. You mentioned that you had left Schlumberger after nearly 30 years there and now at a company, Seacops, that's sort of sitting in the middle of this one boom in, in interest on the regulatory side and how do we capture and measure a lot of these methane emissions, but then also very timely with what's happening with COVID with respect to remote work and trying to figure out how to collect some of these measurements at distance. So can you give folks just a little bit of background on that? and where you really see the opportunity there, uh, particularly post-COVID. I was always very impressed with the accuracy of their technology, the fact that they were agnostic to the platform they deploy the technology on. I think it was obviously a little fortuitous that they're already focused on remote working with their drone deployed services. But there's always been a kind of consciousness around removing people from dangerous environments at the well site. You were starting to see more and more remote operations 
autonomous operations. And in fact, the next stage beyond simple drone deployment is completely autonomous deployment. That's certainly something that I think attracted me to this space. And then obviously the push towards kind of environmental sustainability governance from uh, some of the larger companies really taking note that can't fix leaks without really measuring their intensity. Even when I was in Schlumberger, obviously that was a, a measurement company from its formation. It was natural to look at something that would really um, quantify leaks, not just detect them, because I think it's important to know exactly what it is you're looking at in terms of emission rates, uh, not just from an environmental and sustainability reporting perspective, but really what well, is the solution to fix it and ultimately avoid leaks in the future. To me, there's kind of a cascade of scales around emissions. Schlumberger was an investor in GHGSAT, which looks at very large scale leaks but can cover a huge amount of space obviously from space they just launched their second satellite successfully as well and then that can be complemented by the smaller scale measurements all the way down to the handheld sensors that are used today ultimately an operator doesn't want to have all of these providers separately they're going to want to have some sort of integrated service and that kind of puts the camera back on the integrated service companies as being the ultimate aggregator of these kind of technologies how do you think about the lens with which investors view these types of companies? And you, I mean, you wore that hat for a number of years on the venture side, sitting in Silicon Valley right now from the perspective of an institutional VC. We all know the history, right? Like Kleiner Perkins with their green growth fund notoriously put Uber into their green growth fund. But just sitting here and trying to think about how to even categorize these sorts of companies. I mean, you yourself mentioned that they're in part around operational efficiency and service efficiency. You have these new regulations. You need to capture this information. This is the cheapest, most accurate, most efficient way to do that. On the other hand, there's also this amazing clean energy value proposition. How are all these folks actually looking at these companies? Like when you talk to the senior leadership in some of these oil field services companies or traditional majors, do they really think of a company like Seacops as a clean tech company or a company that would be fitting of a green growth title? Or is it truly a lot more around operational efficiency? <laughs> that, 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 that's a very good question. And I think a lot of the operator VCs were burnt by clean tech 1.0. Are we in clean tech 2.0 still? I think we're probably beyond that. And I like to think of it more broadly as the energy transition. Where does a company like Seacops or GHG set fit? I think if we're helping reduce emissions or the decarbonization of the oil and gas business, to me, that's a clean technology. But of course, it's also about operational efficiency. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think you, you can have both. And of course, you know, we're not the only ones in that space as well. I think what's interesting as well in this space is the number of data aggregators like the, uh, the Kairos uh, folks who are looking at really doing some smart analytics on the huge volumes of data that people like ourselves and GHGSAT will be producing. And I think there's room for everybody in this space but it's going to take someone to actually pull it together to give a complete holistic solution. That is ultimately going to be a clean technology solution because it's going to lead to decarbonization. Do you think the operational efficiency piece is a prerequisite? Like, do you think CCOPS is successful if, it, if there was theoretically no angle for operational efficiency? I think you have to have a, an element of that because that's what the operators uh, are looking for and certainly one of the specifications they give you. We've got to drive cost out of the system. Cost is part of that operational efficiency and personnel reduction is, is another one. And, uh, you know, technology like CCOPS kind of uh, certainly ticks both of those boxes. But I think you have to have both to really give uh, a full solution. Let's talk a little bit more about the 
operations specifically within the oil and gas sector post COVID. One of the industries in the United States and globally where you have just so many remote workers and folks that are working in the field, it's virtually impossible to think about remote work in an industry like oil and gas in the same way that you do in technology, where for most of us, we've been working from our living rooms and bedrooms for the last few months. What are you seeing as far as operational changes in the sector as a result of COVID? And how many of them do you think are likely to stick around? Oil and gas certainly has always been an industry that focused number one on health and safety. I think all of the health protocols put in place, particularly for offshore workers, workers that are going to be in close proximity to rigs, were, were nothing nor abnormal for, for that environment. So I, I think in terms of the standards within the industry have always been above and beyond reproach. I haven't seen anything different to, to say otherwise in a post-COVID environment. As we're going through the digital transformation as well, that's certainly something that will continue to accelerate post-COVID. Learning from the huge volumes of data that we continue to acquire in this business and how to operate more efficiently, more remotely. In piggybacking off some of the increases in telemetry rates and data security will lead to evolving offshore and operational environment. So I don't see that changing much either in the post-COVID world. There'll certainly be a little more nervousness to go into the industry. And we've seen that. I've got kids of, uh, of college age that certainly would think twice about the energy industry in its current shape or form. I think partly that's an education issue as well, frankly, because I still think it's one of the most exciting industries to go into. No, that makes sense. And oil and gas is always interesting to me too, just because of the size and scale of the infrastructure projects themselves. I mean, these aren't things, as you know, that are decided in, you know, rotating like six to 12 month budget decisions. These are two, three, four, five, ten, 10, even sometimes longer decisions that are made as to where drilling is going to occur, where infrastructure investment is going to happen, how that is going to work from a labor standpoint. And something like COVID, I would have to imagine is a blip on the radar when it comes to the overall timeline for a project or a well. It's not just ourselves there. I think it's the extraction industries in general. So, I mean, I've talked to a couple of the major mining companies and they're certainly seeing and looking to technology to transform their business as well. And again, primarily digital, but also looking at leveraging things like oil and gas technologies so that they can be more efficient. There always used to be this disparity between price points between oil and gas and mining. But obviously, as oil and gas is focused on lowering cost of service delivery, lowering cost of CapEx, looking at uh, the mining sector, they're having to go deeper, have more complex environments in which they're working for their resource. You're starting to see alignments there that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily have seen before. So I think there's another opportunity there for broader technology investments that span a broader extraction industry. You mentioned labor in particular a second ago, and you talked about education as being a bit of a barrier in the sense that folks aren't as interested in, in oil and gas at, at this time in history. We've all watched the rise of rig up, particularly on the labor marketplace side. And I think of all of the companies to come out of the oil and gas sector in the last couple of years, that's probably one of the most prominent, at least out here in the Valley. What are you seeing about that value proposition? Um, again, particularly in a post-COVID world and one where oil prices are where they are, are you still seeing those labor markets as tight as they were a year or two ago? If RigUp hadn't formed, it would have been created. It was almost a necessity, I think to have something like that uh, marketplace created, particularly given with a loss of experience out of the industry, particularly out of the operators and service companies over the last five or six years. Having the ability to really drill down into the specific personnel for what are still fairly skilled jobs. It's gonna be interesting to, to me kind of being on the outside now to see how the service sector evolved because obviously the service sector had always focused on technology and the skilled services that they provide with their specifically owned personnel, you may see more and more third-party technology delivery platforms moving forward. 
Well, that was kind of what I was getting at here with this is that we've seen the rise of full stack businesses, companies that are trying to provide some sort of end-to-end value add service enabled by technology, which in many sense, like I was kind of sitting here last night thinking through some of these questions and trying to draw the exact distinction between what it means to be like a third-party services provider in oil and gas versus a technology company at a certain point, they kind of become the same thing. So when you think about like the future of this world, do you expect to see more rig ups? Do you expect to see more folks that are tech enabled and providing services in the oil and gas industry at reasonable margins that are able to just start eating some of these processes away entirely? You're absolutely right. I see it not just beyond oil and gas as well. I see many service sectors where you had the brain trust for, for want of a better word, within specific companies. If you look at what the young workforce want today, they don't necessarily want to tie themselves to a specific provider anymore. So I think the marketplace will proliferate. Now, whether, it, again, it comes crashing down again or there's some consolidation. If I was entering the energy space now, it's obviously a very different world from when I joined. Why did people join the energy business? It was exciting work exciting environments and the ability to travel. That hasn't gone away. I just think the mechanisms by which you can do that have grown significantly. Do you see specific opportunities on the technology side for tasks that could easily be outsourced or automated by some kind of third-party technology provider, like particularly things that would contribute significantly to margin to a lot of these businesses? We've seen that with some of the investments folks like Honeywell and Siemens have made into the oil and gas space. I think they clearly see there's a role for them in assisting with the automation of these industries. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think you'll see more uh, perhaps non-traditional oil and gas companies see that there's value in that space, whether it's around the digital side or the hardware uh, side of automation. Are there specific tasks, though, I guess, when you think about the industry that you think are particularly ripe for automation given the state of AI and machine learning and RPA and such today? You should be able to drill a well, drill and complete a well completely remotely and autonomously. Making up connections, swapping out drill bits, following a trajectory, that's all something that really could be done by computer. Production enhancement fracturing uh, as well does lend itself automation. Again, you're, most of these things you're following a plan are then responding to real-time data as you, uh, as you modify the plan on the fly. That's a general optimization skill set that certainly could apply anywhere in the industry. What about procurement? I mean, we talk a lot about CapEx here. Is that an area where you see a lot of opportunity for automation or outsourcing? Whereas an industry manage huge amount of equipment globally, moving it all over the place, perhaps less than optimally uh, in some cases. Uh, and so again, technology that can facilitate the optimization of logistics a la Walmart, I think is certainly something that uh, we was certainly looking at. One other big category um, you and I have also talked about in the past is decommissioning of aging infrastructure. This is something we've been paying a lot of attention to just given the amount of spend from oil companies that's been going into managing aging infrastructure that has to continue to run and then decommissioning pieces that are just basically excess um, at this point. So I'm curious what you're seeing around technology for those particular applications and whether you've seen any tech companies capturing some of that spend and solving real problems in the field. Schlumberger invested in one particular company, BISN, that was developing uh, liquid metal seals so that you would uh, not necessarily have to have large amounts of cement, which you know, have always been known to be potentially a leak path to surf. They actually grew significantly during the, the downturn, again, primarily driven by uh, plug and abandonment. When there's typically a downturn, you do see the operators kind of refocus on the, the P&A type of jobs. 
I always felt that was a good opportunity, again, to deliver holistic services around that well decommissioning. BISN certainly was one of those that stood out for me. And again, obviously, was one of those that had an interesting mix of investors that was service company and operator and even competitor service companies uh, being on the same uh, investor role. Do you see opportunities as well for software there? Or I, I suppose this kind of goes back to some of the earlier discussion around hardware and, and operations to solve real problems in this industry. Is, is there still an opportunity for like a software only company to be able to make a, a major difference in something like aging infrastructure? I think so. I think decommissioning has always been seen to be at the low end of the market where margins tend to be a little tighter. So anywhere where you optimize on the uh, the planning, logistics, equipment, relocation is ripe for innovation. And so I, I think yeah, certainly on the uh, optimized planning side, I would say there's an opportunity there. Let's talk a little bit about then maybe refining optimization, just like massive multivariable problem. Um, what we've seen, at least in the market in the last couple of years, is just the excess capacity driving down margins. You talked a little bit about logistics. Can you give folks a little bit more context on where the opportunity might be there? And if you were a founder, how you might go about starting to solve some of those problems? I was thinking more on the upstream side there where you know, you're mobilizing multiple crews to multiple locations with multiple equipment. So you've got a, a really large multi-parameter optimization problem, particularly scheduling of personnel on top of that. And this is where someone like a rig up actually has quite a, a lot of influence, I, I would think, because they've got the uh, personnel directory by which they could potentially optimize particular crews. And you, know, you, you could certainly imagine combined crews from multiple service companies perhaps in the future based on location, skill set, access to tools. There's an opportunity to change the kind of paradigm of operator, contractor, service company into a more open kind of delivery. You emphasized upstream. Is that at the expense of downstream in the sense that maybe there's just less of an opportunity there? Downstream is a little more static. You've got a refinery, it's a bit more like a traditional chemical company. There's still quite a bit of optimization that can be done and, and obviously you're monitoring to, to optimize processes within the refinery. But in the upstream side, you're really got a 5D space that you're trying to manage. Specifically, maybe focusing on upstream for the purposes of this conversation, where do you see the biggest opportunities for increased efficiency on just pure workflows? We started to see that. We invested in Passable at Schlumberger, which was looking at standardized work instructions and being able to communicate that, have sign-off on instructions, and then also be able to give immediate assistance to folks when they needed to look at repairing a valve, etc. Anything that facilitates the ability of people in the field to respond quickly to environments that are not normal or not expected will be important. So being able to do that cradle-to-grave management of being able to schedule a job, put the people in place, schedule the job itself, have systems that uh, can manage change in real time while you're doing that job, and then ultimately spit out the automated reports needed to uh, either validate the, the job or for regulatory reporting. It touches on security, data management, analytics, telemetry. It's a very complex problem we're trying to solve, you know, as complex as deep space missions, and it's right here at home. If we're thinking about increasing, obviously there's only so many levers you can pull in business, one of them being cutting costs, the other one being increasing revenue. If you're a startup founder and you want to solve one of these two problems within oil and gas, what would be your recommendation? Cost always comes first. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the operators are always trying to drive. You do see cycles. It does depend on even the individual personnel within those companies. We're always being driven on price. 
Awesome. Well, thank you, Ian, so much. This was incredibly interesting and really, really thankful that you were able to spend some time with us and share some wisdom with these founders. Thank you. I mean, uh, I, I never tire of talking about the time I had in the VC. I obviously loved my time on the oil field side with Schlumberger. There was no better company to have spent 29 years with in terms of being able to access the world and look at a broad range of technology. A unique facet of the oil industry is the size and scale of infrastructure and operations investments around the world. While oil's had to reckon with more change than most, it has one of the strongest foundations of any industry on the planet. Budgets and returns are thought of on much longer time horizons than your average tech startup. This enables the industry to move forward amidst volatility. Startups like RigUp have shown the world how disruptive technology can be to the oil industry. And the next set of unicorns in the space will help oil producers find their footing in a world transitioning away from oil. Tech-enabled services and automation more broadly is poised to become even more important to the industry as pressure to control margins becomes even greater. We see opportunities for tech companies to build massive businesses supporting the decommissioning of aging infrastructure, automating procurement, supporting midstream operations, and optimizing both labor and logistics. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Future Proof. We'll be posting episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. So watch for our next episode. Check out BasisSet's full research on oil and gas at basisset.ventures research. And if you want to chat about any of the themes from this episode, drop me a note at john at basisset.ventures.